Amen. Well, y'all can have a seat. That's good stuff right there. Man, he is so worthy of, of our worship, worth worshiping, uh, even when there's darkness, like, like we said. And uh, I don't know if you're, you're feeling it like I am, but uh, just this snow lately. Like, talk about darkness. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but like the blizzard of, I think it's blizzard of 78, like that, that was like a really big deal, apparently. Um, we actually surpassed the amount of snow that there was in the blizzard of 78 this week. So um, I'm a Florida boy, so pray for me. I know the blizzard of 78 was like, a, you know, a bigger deal, but anyway. Um, well, my name is Kent. If I've never met you, excited to be sharing with, with y'all this morning. Um, and if you've been with us, you're, you're probably a little excited too, because you know that we're continuing this series that we've been in where we're looking at the book of James. And James, to me, is a particularly interesting book because James was a real historical figure in the Bible, that that, that he was the half-brother of Jesus. And not just that, James is the half-brother of Jesus who does not believe that his brother is really God. That Jesus claims to be God, well, well, James probably does not believe this early on because he doesn't follow Jesus in, in his earthly ministry, right? James isn't one of the original 12 disciples. There's a couple other Jameses that, that, are, that are with Jesus, but his brother James is not one of them because he doesn't believe that, that Jesus is really God. And so Jesus leaves home. You know, he's, he's walking around. He's doing his ministry. He lives, and then he dies, Right? And then we all know what happened next, right? He starts appearing again. <laughs> Something happened, like, like maybe he rose from the dead, is what we believe as Christians, right? That, that Jesus starts appearing again. And one of the people that he appears to first is his brother, James. The Bible says that, that he appeared to him. It doesn't say how this happened, but I, I kind of like to just use my imagination as to how this might have taken place. And, and I picture James as he's at home and he's just kind of going about his business, maybe cooking dinner, and there's a knock at the door and Jesus is just standing outside like just waiting, you know, and James answers the door and Jesus is like, oh, and James is like, no way. <laughs> so, you know, I, I mean, we, we honestly, we don't know what this would have been like, but, but something happened, right? Like that, that, made, uh, that made James all of a sudden go from an un- unbeliever, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, to a believer. And the Bible says that he, he appeared to him. So it's really interesting that we have sort of this anecdotal evidence that the resurrection actually happened, right? You've probably heard this before, but what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was God? Probably have to raise from the dead, right? <laughs> and, and so, so it's a really interesting sort of apologetic that we have when we look at the life of James. And, and beyond that, it's also really interesting uh, just to sort of examine James's doubt that that James doesn't want to be a part of something that's not real. He's like, if it's not real, I'm, I'm not going to follow it. He he wants to know is this real or is it not? And and I think that that question right there is something that that is embedded deep within humanity. And we don't want to be a part of, of fake stuff. We, we, we only want to be a part of real stuff. And so we're, we're asking the question, is this real or is this not, right? Is this real news or is this fake news? Is this a real phone call I'm receiving or is it a telemarketer, right? Is this email that says I want a million dollars real or is it spam? It's spam. <laughs> Delete it. We're asking this question, is it real? And the good news for us today is that James thinks the same way. And what we're going to see as we sort of examine his book together is we're going to watch James use this sort of process and this question of, of, is this real, as it relates to the topic of faith. And faith, just like anything else, um, is is one of those things that that can either be real or it can be fake. 
that, that just like fake news has an impact on, on our lives and an impact on the lives of the people that we know, fake faith, same way, has an impact on our, on our life with God, certainly has an impact on people's perception of, of what, a, what a life with God could look like. And so we're asking a question today, just a big question that I want all of us to sort of ponder and, and to think about, and it's this, is my faith real? Real simple. Is my faith real? And it's kind of a challenging question. It's pretty hard. And actually, as we engage with the book of James, he's going to help us answer this and, and analyze it. And he's going to use sort of some, some like harsh language at times to help us figure this out. But I want you to know that, that we're not asking this question to you know, generate any sense of fear or anxiety or doubt in you. Now, we're asking this question from a place of love. Right? Because we know that, that none of us wants to be a part of something fake. All of us wants to be a part of the real thing. And way too much hangs in the balance of, of how we answer this question of, is my faith real or, or is it not? Right? This Literally, our relationship with God is at, is at stake. So we're going to answer this question, is my faith real together? Um, but since it's such a big one, let me just pray one more time, and then we'll dive into the text. So, Lord, would you meet us here today? As we uh, open up your word to us through your brother James, would you speak to us? Lord, will we be able to answer the question, is my faith real together? Lord, I, I pray that, that as we ask this question, that we wouldn't, uh, the result wouldn't be just fear or uncertainty, Lord, but greater assurance in our faith in you, or perhaps even a new faith in you. Jesus, I ask this in, in your great name. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and take it out. Uh, you can meet me in James. I'm going to be reading chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And James says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James starts off pretty harsh. He says, faith that does not have deeds is dead. Maybe your translation says, faith without works is dead. And this word that he uses, this, this word for dead, would have evoked the image in his original hearers of a dead body. <laughs> that, that just like a dead body just lays there and does nothing, that, that faith that, that is dead does nothing before God. That, that faith without action is dead. And I want to pause there for a second because if you know your Bible and if you grew up in church, this might sound a little bit like a contradiction to the gospel at first glance, right? It, you know, because doesn't, doesn't the Bible and doesn't the Apostle Paul talk a lot about this reality that we're, we're saved apart from our works, right? It, it, isn't that true? And I want you to hear this. Yes, it's true. I'll even show you. Uh, in Romans 3, 28, the Apostle Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 5 says similar things. Throughout the Bible, it talks about this reality, that that is true. We are saved by faith apart from our works. But I want you to know that James is not in disagreement with this reality here. You see, a lot of people use passages like this in the Bible to see, 
to say, see, there's contradictions. This is why I can't trust the Bible. There's contradictions in the Bible. Listen, there's not contradictions in the Bible. There's just misinterpretations. There's misunderstanding of context, and that's what's going on there, if if that's how you understand it. So I want to help you understand the context just a little bit with an analogy. I've heard it put this way by a couple different people. I want you right now to imagine that you're in a doctor's office. You're sitting there, and you're in the waiting room, and there's two examination rooms. Now, in this doctor's office, the walls are kind of thin. So you can hear what's happening in these two examination rooms, and you hear the doctor walk into the first room, and you hear him say to his patient, you need to start jogging. You need to be a little more active. You need to get up every day, and you need to do something, just like get going. This is what you need to be healthy. Then you hear the doctor leave, and moments later, you hear him enter the other examination room. And he says, you need to stop moving. You need to stay still. Stop being active. Don't run. You just need to lay in your bed, sit there. This is what you need in order to be healthy. Now, would this be a contradiction in this context? No, (laughs) right? Because the doctor is talking to two different patients. One of them has a weight problem and needs to get, get moving to be healthy. The other one has a broken leg and just needs to lay there to get healthy, right? This is what's happening between James and the Apostle Paul, that they have two different patients, if you will, two different audiences that they're, that they're communicating to. And while Paul's ministry is focused on this group of people, <clears throat> these Gentiles, these people that, that weren't Christians yet, uh, he's focused on these people that believed that they could work their way to God, that, that they just needed to be good enough people, that they needed to get their act together, and then God would accept them. And, and the Apostle Paul is looking at this, and he's like, no. No way. Before a holy God, our works cannot justify us. We, we just need Jesus' works on our behalf. This is what Paul talks about. But James is talking to a, a totally different crowd. James's crowd, they're, they're already believers. They're, they're a group of, of Jewish Christians, and, and they had already accepted the message of Jesus, but their problem is they just weren't doing anything with it. They had, had claimed belief in, in this message that that Jesus was God and he had done all these things on their behalf, but then they were turning it into just sort of this comfortable, passive religion. And so Paul is focusing on how we can sort of become Christians. James is focusing on here's how it looks to live as a Christian. One's about the root of our salvation. The other is examining the fruit of our salvation. You see, they don't contradict. They actually complement each other in this just beautiful, robust way. And so James says, faith, real faith, is always accompanied with action. They go together, and he gives this illustration. Verse 15, he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Uh, Some commentators call this sort of like the armchair philanthropist, right? It's it's someone that, that just is all talk, no walk. Right? They, they, they're all sort of outward confession, no inward transformation or anything like that. And, and I think this is pretty common in our world today, if we're being honest, right? Because it's real easy just to say the Christian platitudes, like, you know, I'll pray for you, and maybe we don't, and, you know, God is good all the time, sweet. Slap my Christian bumper sticker on the car, and then, you know, just crank up the K-love. And, you know, these things aren't, aren't bad, 
They're not bad, like, they're not bad things at all, but I think sometimes we get so locked into just our, our little private faith systems that we forget that there's more to it than that. That, that we, we forget that our relationships with God are meant to impact the world around us, that they're for us and they're for the world, that we were made for this incredible mission. Now, I grew up going to church pretty much like m- most Sundays, I would say, and I actually still remember the first uh, prayer that my parents taught me to pray, and it was, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, see you safely through the night, and wake us with the morning light. Just a real good prayer for, for young kids to learn. And that was sort of my, my bedtime routine, and, and it was really good. But looking back on it, I'm grateful that, that at a certain point, my parents taught me that, that there was more to that, that, that there was more to it than that. And at a, cert, at a certain age, they invited me to, to pray for the other kids at school. That when we were done saying that prayer, that it was, hey, let's also pray for the other kids that you're at in school, and, and then more and more. And over time, my understanding of, of my relationship with God began to expand. That all of a sudden, I began to realize that, that, that my relationship that I had, this thing between me and God, that it wasn't just a horizontal relationship, that it was meant for everyone I knew. It was, it was meant for the, the horizontal as well, not just vertical, horizontal relationship. Now, I wonder for many of us, if we're honest, and if we're examining our faith, uh, if our faith looks kind of like that, if, if it's just sort of like a little, you know, routine that we walk through, if it's just this, you know, if it's just this prayer that you pray before your meal, before bed, if it's just a prayer that you prayed once, uh, once in your life, and, you know, there hasn't been much since then, I want you to know you're missing out. James's point here is this, that real faith, it's more than just words. That our, that our words are, are one thing and they're good, but they're, they're meant to lead to, to something else, that we are meant to impact the world with Jesus. So that's point number one, real faith, more than just words. He, he goes on though, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds, pegging the two against each other again. Show me your faith without deeds, though, he says, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Another really bold section, right? He's describing another type of faith that, that, that isn't real. He, he says there's another type of faith. It's kind of like the dead faith that we talked about before, but this faith is a little more active, that at least it moves a little bit. It, it shudders in fear. <laughs> it's this faith that, that he says even the demons have. Now, when I say that, it's a little bit like, whoa, what? Like this is kind of like weird and crazy and foreign in our culture and our time to, to even talk about. But when you flip through the pages of the Bible and you look into Jesus's ministry, you see that there were people that, that like had demons. In Mark 5, that, that there's a demon-possessed man. And it says that, that when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him and he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, don't torture me. Now, what's interesting to me about this is not just that there's a demon. I mean, that's interesting in its own light. But, but beyond that, it's interesting that this demon has like good theology. That he recognizes that Jesus is son of the most high God. This is, this is great Christology. <laughs> Throughout the Bible, we see that, that the devil and the, the enemy, that, that they know a lot about the Bible, more than anybody in this room, more than me, more, more than all of us. The problem is that even though they have all this knowledge, they lack 
a love for God. Their knowledge doesn't lead to a love for God. It doesn't lead to an obedience for God, right? It's all theology. It's no doxology, right? Information without the worship. This is a problem. And this is, this is James's point, right? This is why he quotes Deuteronomy 6.4. He says, hey, you all know this, this passage, that the Lord your God is one. This was sort of their John 3.16 of the day. It was known as the great Shema. They would quote this at the beginning and end of each day, that the Lord your God is one. He says, listen, that's, that's really good that you know that. But don't forget about the very next verse, Deuteronomy 6.5, right? It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. You see, our knowledge of God is always supposed to lead to an accompanying affection for God as well. But I think often we can be tempted to kind of confuse the two, just to, to learn a lot about God and, and leave it at that, to, to remain cold towards, towards God. Theology in itself can be such a divisive thing, right? We learn a lot and we can kind of like puff ourselves up. That's not an obedient thing to do before God, to puff yourself up. We, we can learn a lot about God and then we can go and poke out other people's bad theology and talk about them behind their back. You're not being obedient to God. God says, go to that person and talk to them. That would be great. Don't gossip. You need to be obedient. I don't know if you saw this um, a couple weeks ago. This is kind of sad. Uh, man who passed away, Ravi Zacharias. Maybe, maybe you heard of him. Um, he was a Christian apologist, man who uh, you know, traveled the world, proclaimed the message of Jesus to millions of people. Really impressive guy while he was alive. Um, and he'd hold these conferences and people would come and they would ask him really hard theological questions and he just always had the answer. And it was always well articulated, always really orthodox theology and all this stuff. And he just, he inspired millions of people. Well, really sadly, you may have seen this, that, that um, recently it was discovered through a really thorough investigation that behind closed doors, that this man was abusing people. <laughs> really sad. That, that he was using his theological prowess as sort of an enabling device, using his ministry authority to take advantage of, of women. And, and many people have, have seen this, and it's just incredibly disappointing and, and sad. And I won't get into the details too much, and, and I don't know what happens for a guy like Ravi now that he's passed and as he, as he stands before the Lord. But I do want to say that James is making it clear here that that's not real faith. Right? That we can have all the knowledge in the world. You can be as good of a theologian as, as a Ravi Zacharias, right? But if it doesn't lead to a love for God, then you're only on the same level as the demons. You can know all of this stuff and still be abusive towards other people. This is not real faith. And James wants, wants us to see this. He wants us to have more than that. Point number two is this, that real faith is more than knowledge. More than just knowledge. He goes on, verse 20. He says, you foolish person. Really harsh, again, right? You, you foolish person. He's actually raised, uh, um, this wouldn't have sounded as harsh, I don't think, to the, the original hear, hearers. He's raised to sort of write in the, in the way that, that the Proverbs were written. So it's just kind of like hyperbole, the way that, the way that they would have heard this. So he says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is his final section for us, and he finally gives us an example of what real faith looks like. Because it looks like these two people, Abraham and Rahab, the original hearers of this topic would have been really familiar with both of them. Abraham is a patriarch. Rahab is a prostitute. They're polar opposites, right? And I think he does this intentionally, right? To say, hey, it doesn't matter if if you have it all together. It doesn't matter if your life's a mess. It doesn't matter if you're a man. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. If you're a hero in your country or you're an outcast, that, that all of us need saved by faith that these are like contrasting characters, but they also have something in common. And what they have in common is even more significant, is that their faith is real faith, that both of them, that the, the, the things that they believed were working themselves out through the way that they lived. And it gives us a little glimpse of the story, right? You, you might know the stories, uh, um, but basically Abraham is a guy who, who gets a promise from God at a certain point in his life and says he believed God and God credited that belief to him as righteousness at the time. But then later on in life, he, he gets the opportunity for, for that belief to work itself out through obedience in his life. And Abraham goes so far as to be willing to offer what he holds most dear to God in order to be obedient to God. And if you remember the story, God steps in, stops it from happening. But we see this, this faith in Abraham, that this willingness to obey God through his actions. Rahab's similar, right? That, that, you know, she risks her whole life, her reputation in the community, all, all this stuff. She risks her life to take in these spies, that her actions are showing that she really believes what she says that she believes. For both of them, it says that their faith was made complete by what they did, more than words, more than knowledge. It's faith working itself out through their lives. And this is, this is not just with, with Abraham and Rahab. This is throughout the entire scriptures. This is what real faith looks like, right? Jesus himself, when he's talking about how do you know like, who, the, who the fakers are and who the, who the real things are, and he says, well, you'll know them by their fruit, right? If there ain't no fruit, then there might not be a root, or maybe you've heard it in this other way. Uh, I've heard it like this before, that, that if there's no fire or if there's no smoke coming out of the chimney, then there might not be a fire in the fireplace, right? Where there's real, real fire, there's smoke. And where there's a root, there's fruit. And so if you don't remember anything else that I say, if you don't remember any of these other points that I've made, I want you to remember this, that, that real faith produces works. That real faith eventually is going to produce some type of works. This is the essence of what faith is. You want to know if your faith is real, James says. Look at your life. Is there evidence of real faith? Ask, ask your spouse. Can you tell? Can you tell that I actually believe what I say I believe? Ask your friends. Ask your roommates, right? Can you tell that I really believe what I say that I believe? And this isn't opposed to the gospel at all. Again, just to circle back for a second, you know, James and Paul, they're friends. If you check out Acts 15, you can actually see James stick 
stick up for the, for the Apostle Paul at the Jerusalem Council, that James is the one that actually sends out the Apostle Paul onto his missionary journeys, right? The, the two of them are friends. And even the Apostle Paul in his writings, after he's sent out, the message that, that he had flows so nicely along with, with James's message. I'll, I'll show you in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He said, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? And this is what James is getting at, this part. To do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Even from the Apostle Paul, right? That real faith will eventually produce some kind of work, some kind of maturity, right? The question is, as we sit here today and we, we think about our lives, do we have real faith? Are we, are we showing evidence in our lives of our faith? And this is what the world desperately needs, right? So much fake stuff in our world. You know, self-righteousness, passivity, all, all this stuff. The world desperately needs examples of men and women who, who have real faith. See, I think that just like James didn't believe in Jesus until he saw that Jesus had, had risen from the dead, I think that the watching world will not believe until they see examples of people that have faith that's also not dead. That for some of us, our faith needs to come alive again. Now, I want you to know that, that obviously we're, we're saved by, by faith alone, and, and we believe that here. But church, our faith, it's got to be the real thing. And that's James's message to us this morning. And so I want to close like this. I don't know where this lands with you as you've been asking this question, is my faith real? But I wonder if there's, there's someone in here who, who for you, as you're, as you're sitting here, maybe you've realized that you don't have faith. You've got, you've got a dead faith. And if that's you, man, maybe today's the day that you'd come to Jesus. Maybe today's the day that you'd stop trying to prove to God that you're good enough and that you'd look to Jesus on the cross and say, I surrender. It's not what I do, it's what you do on my behalf. Maybe today's the day that he begin to transform your life from the inside out. And if that's you, I just wanna, man, just really encourage you, please talk to someone, that, that is awesome. We'd love to come along, alongside of you, one of our staff, or maybe the person you came with, and we'd love to just, just talk to you about what a relationship with Jesus looks like. Just say to him, I need Jesus. And we'd love to talk to you about that. But I know that, that for many of us, we're here and we've come and, and you're already a believer in Jesus. But maybe as I've been talking, you know, you've realized that your faith has become kind of cold. That there's not a ton of, of fruit in your life. And as you're, as you're thinking about it and you're, you're wondering about, you know, what sort of an impact am I having in life and you're looking at the fruit in your life, maybe you're starting to wonder, well, maybe I don't actually have a root. And I just want to encourage you, man, just remember the gospel. We just need to to remember the gospel together and to rest in it. And one of the ways that we do that is through taking communion. And, and communion is, is really significant. We talk about it a lot, but, but really what's happening is it's this physical representation of what Christ has already finished for us on the cross. That, that when Jesus died and he said it was finished, that, that it really was finished. <laughs> that it's really been finished for you. And what would be really bad is if you heard this message today and you thought, man, I got to leave here and I just got to do more. 
I just got to try harder and, and I just got to do more. Man, I, I don't think that that's what the point is here. I think what we need to do is we need to rest in the gospel because the truth is when we really believe the gospel, that it, it ignites a fire within us, this fire that, that's just bound to produce smoke. That, that when we take the truth of God in, the words of God, that it's bound to produce the truth of God all around us, right? The gospel is the thing that ignites real faith inside of us. We need to remember the gospel. We need to remember its goodness. We need to know what we have enough where we just want to let it spill out all around us. So, so we're going to do that together. Uh, we're just going to sing a couple songs here um, in a second, and I'm going to pray. And at any point during these, these last couple songs, make your way to the back and just remember the grace of God that's been given to you through Jesus. Um, yeah, and we'll just, we'll just sing to him. So let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, they're, they're hard words. Um, Lord, but we, we know they're from a place of, of love. God, I just, um, I do just want to pray for all of us here as we sit here and we ponder, is our faith real? Um, Lord, I pray that uh, this morning we might leave with a sense of assurance. God, that, that you've, you've done it, that it's finished. Lord, that, that the good news is that we've been saved by grace. Lord, and I just pray that, that as we trust in that reality, that it would transform who we are. Lord, that we wouldn't just hear this amazing news that you've died for us and do nothing. Or would you send us from this place to love others as you've loved us or to, to treat a world who needs examples of real faith so badly uh, as you would treat them. Father, that's our prayer. Would you meet us here as we sing in Jesus' name, amen.